One, one. Right. Welcome everyone to News of the Money World. I am delighted to be in the presence of genius Rupert Carlon and myself. I'm in my own presence as well. So today, Rupert, let's talk about a whole bunch of stuff. We'll start with the official cash rate announcement that's going to be coming out uh, tomorrow here in New Zealand. And then we'll finish up, if we can get there, all the way to the mounting mound of cash that Berkshire Hathaway is sitting on. So let's start with the OCR, the Reserve Bank of New Zealand, Adrian Orr, no stranger to headlines in the crypto community, uh, world famous since ages ago for, um, for his comments last week. But in respect to the official cash rate, the mechanism that gets dialed up or down to control the rate of inflation, what are your general views? Higher for longer? lower and sooner i'm sitting on the fence here um i think i think it's a really really interesting one in that definitely over the last three weeks four weeks the balance has moved further towards uh higher for longer potentially even further hikes than, than it was kind of at the start of the year uh unemployment data has, has remained stronger than we anticipate um and then some of that core inflation stuff just kind of remains pretty sticky and remains pretty high as well. And to be fair, it's not just New Zealand that we're seeing this. Uh, we're also starting to see this in um, in America and other parts of the world as well. I think the bit that probably gives me quite a lot of concern though, um, I think no one, everyone agrees that the economy is pretty sick right now. Uh, when you've got a per capita negative GDP of kind of that two to 3%, that's a pretty horrible space for us to be. Uh, the problem we've now got though, is we've got a reserve bank which has got a single focus mandate which means they are only allowed to think about inflation um and does that push them to go probably harder than they otherwise might have um so yeah it's a, it's a bit of a tough one right now i think um i a, a betting man i would say on wednesday we're going to get a hey we're cautiously watching um and it's going to be a pretty hawkish uh commentary but I think we're still looking at a mid kind of year um, where interest rates start to come down again because what we do know is the state of the economy is pretty poor. Mm -hmm. It will catch up. Um, and then when they do start cutting, generally they start cutting sooner and faster uh, than anyone anticipates. Yeah, I get it. And just to speak to that singular focus they have right now, it's kind of like the only analogy that I can dream up on the spot here is like when you're driving a vehicle, sometimes you'll put the foot on the brake because you'll see all sorts of reasons to slow down. But if we think about this singular focus, it's almost like the car is going down a really steep hill and you have to slam on the brakes pretty hard. But at some stage you reach the bottom of the hill and it starts going up. And if you keep on slamming on the brakes with the same amount of force, you're gonna come to a complete stop and potentially even go backwards. And that's kind of what it feels like right now. It kind of feels like we're just at the bottom of the hill and the same level of breaking force is being applied by the central bank. Will they, will they keep on pushing this hard or will they kind of look like, <coughs> you know, will they look like they're the heavy handed brake and accelerator bus driver person or what? Like that's the thing, right? <coughs> and I do generally believe that kind of on balance, there's a bit more force on the higher for longer camp this year. You saw that shift kind of happen even in February. Um, in terms of just the general consensus seems to have flipped. So I just feel like we're at a real precipice, though, with this announcement tomorrow. Um, it'll be really interesting. 
Yeah, well, I mean, Bloomberg's been really interesting on this. Uh, we talk a lot about uh, Bloomberg uh, articles, and they've been they've actually been very critical on this joint mandate, on the singular mandate, because they right. they take the view that this is actually going back to the 1990s um, versus kind of using modern monetary theory, which is kind of the balancing out employment and other factors as well. So mm-hmm. it, it will be pretty interesting. Um, but hey, there's an interesting article this morning. Uh, in the Herald talking about how Nicola Willis sees herself as the next Ruth Richardson. So maybe the early 1990s is where we're going back to. Hey, there's nothing new under the sun, right? It's like, <laughs> hey, it's in fashion again. Um, oh, you never know. It, it is. It's the, the only slight issue with that approach is um, there are not very many international economists that think we did very good for our economy or our people mm. through that period. We put ourselves mm. through a huge amount of unnecessary pain, I think, is the general consensus. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I just hope that we don't have a set of politicians that believe that that is the right answer. Yeah, well, I think that's it's inevitable. As soon as you start tinkering with anything, you're going to get negative feedback loops that just spiral out of control inevitably. Um, <laughs> so, again, I'll try and squash my libertarian leanings here. But let's talk about the long-term fiscal position yeah. of New Zealand, right? Because this is, a, this is something that we talked about last week. In this space... Um, to do with health, like we have an aging population, as a lot of Western countries do, where there's a lot more baby boomers about to hit the public health system, way more demand, hip operations, knee operations, you name it. And then when we look at our You've only had three so far, haven't you, Dusty? I've only had three children, correct? Yes. <laughs> oh, three, three hip, hip operations. operations. I, I thought you were, I thought you were a bionic man, already had your knees and your hips and all that done and a bit of plastic surgery on the face. Yeah, well, well, definitely. One of those, or at least, <laughs> got to be true, right? <laughs> Can't look this good and be 84, right? Um, but exactly. No, I haven't had three hips done. I only have two hips. Anyway, um, now you got me distracted. Come on. Let's try this one again. Sorry. <laughs> but with respect to the uh, long-term fiscal positioning of New Zealand, again, think about what we were talking about before with the mandate that the central bank has to simply put the foot on the accelerator or the brake with respect to interest rates to cool down or speed up uh, the economy. We kind of need the economy to be forming pretty well so that we can generate the amount of income that we need to generate the amount of tax revenue that we need to fund the kind of services that not everybody can access. So it's a really difficult balancing act that government and central bank has to kind of yeah. work in tandem like this. But you've been looking into this uh, this fiscal positioning piece a little bit longer. What are your general thoughts on the evolution of oh, this? Look, I just, I, to be fair, this was a little bit of a, a we told you so kind of um, last week and Treasury came out and agreed with us this week. Um, it was kind of interesting. So Treasury Secretary, uh, she did a speech uh, earlier in the week and um, basically talking about that 7% of GDP growing to 10% for healthcare. And actually, we're going to have to cut a whole lot of the healthcare services. And I think these are really interesting conversations. And probably this is a little bit of my forum to, to vent, to go, actually, why are we not having these as broader conversations in uh, at, at the political level? Um, mm-hmm. Because I think there are some big headwinds coming. And to Treasury are doing a great job at flagging a whole lot of the stuff. Because mm-hmm. uh, the, what they've said now is gone. Actually, free universal healthcare is just it's it's not reality. It's not something that we're going to be able to afford, um, mm-hmm. and we need to start those conversations now versus later. 
but yeah, I, I thought it was really interesting that that's now becoming more and more vocal. And actually, yeah. I'm pretty sure governments, whether you're either government, are not going to be all that happy with Treasury becoming so vocal on that either, because it's yeah. going to make it harder and harder to hide from that conversation. Yeah, but awesome though, right? Like that's that's such a good aspect of oh, it's what you want from the public service. Yeah, so so good on them. Um, force the conversation. Like I, I know yeah. at, the, at the micro level, I force the conversation as much as I can. <laughs> I'm talking about uh, private health insurance versus relying on the state to take care of you. At some stage, we're not going to be able to afford it. Uh, you just have to look at demographics, right? Oh, hard out. And that's, I mean, yeah. So it's kind of a lot of what we've been talking about for the last kind of six or 12 months. It comes back to productivity. Can we pay people high enough wages that we retain good quality staff? Um, mm. We don't get all of our police, our nurses, our teachers being poached to go across to Australia. Yeah, uh, yeah it's, it's, a, it's a really vicious cycle that we seem to have got ourselves in. Yeah. Um, but we don't kind of have a plan at all to get ourselves out of, unfortunately. Yeah, if only there was a free market in government. Um, and I'm sure <laughs> like in the US, like that's probably what they're thinking as well. So we've, we've got another news item. The, the U.S. shutdown, it feels like this is a rerun Ugh. probably from another episode that we would have done a couple of years ago. But the U.S. We've done this at least eight, eight episodes in the last two years. Yeah, surely. So, But it's not going away. And I, I'm guessing the tension between the U.S. lawmakers and we're in an election year as well. We've got, like I'm talking when I say we, I mean the U.S. have people flooding across their border from Mexico um, and then you have billions of dollars going to Israel and Ukraine. Understandably, there's there's a lot of tension around this shutdown risk this time around. Um, your general view? Look, uh, so it's interesting, right? This is a slightly different shutdown than, than previous. So in the, the agreement they made in November, they said, look, they gave it an extra three or four months to go. Uh, and that's what's coming out for this end of this week. I think there are 12, I don't quite understand, 12 parts of government four impacted by this shutdown. There'll be another four, I think, either back in the next week or slightly afterwards, and then another four afterwards. Yeah. Um, and then if they haven't agreed within the next six weeks, then it's kind of just a across-the-board cuts, which have been kind of agreed and mandated. Yeah. What I think is kind of quite scary right now, though, is what we've seen with the Ukraine and um, Russia, sorry, Ukraine and Israel aid bills, yeah. where it feels as though the current Republican view in Congress is mm. just make sure nothing works, make it as hard as we can um, mm. so that come election time, it's chaos and therefore Donald Trump can kind of talk about how he's cleaning up the chaos and he's going to sort this all out. So mm. I think um, there was a lot of anger at Mitch Johnson, um, who the US Congress Speaker, when he did the, um, the deal back in November. And yep. so I, I don't see any of that anger having dissipated. If anything, Congress has become even more radical. The fact that they can get a bipartisan agreement through the Senate on immigration and Ukraine, and then Donald Trump comes out and goes, don't do that, and all of a sudden everyone backs off and it's no longer bipartisan. So, yeah, it, it feels as though we should be primed for quite a bit of chaos at the moment. Mm. Yeah, and like... I don't even know what to say about this because it's like the dysfunction that you want to um, elaborate on, right? Like it, it's everywhere in the, in the U.S. politics and how the even just in a, insider trading allegations from um, on, on Nancy Pelosi and all these these pieces, yeah. you, it just looks like an absolute mess. 
And meanwhile, the people kind of are like completely impotent. And it, I don't think that that situation can persist indefinitely. At some stage, there's a reaction to the sense that people don't have any agency anymore over there. And in, in, in a sense, there's parallels all across the world. But I think when, when I look at the U.S. these days, I kind of look at that as like the central arena where there is some sort of battle that's playing out. And this is the year where it'll be either V-Day or D-Day. We don't know. Um, I'm fascinated by, by this. I don't know enough about it really to comment much more beyond that. But heck, it looks nasty. So It is nasty. And I think, yeah. hey, but the, the problem is, right? Everyone's like, oh, it's just Trump, it's just Trump, it's just Trump. But actually Trump is the, what's the word? Trump is the outcome of the society that we've created, right? And so if yeah. it's not him, is it someone else? And look, I, I think it's pretty hard. It's, it, it is going to be a fascinating year. It's going to be fascinating to see what happens. And yeah, I probably feel most sorry for the poor people in Ukraine who are unlikely to get the, the help they need because it's turned into an American political football, uh, yeah, which is yeah. definitely not where you want it to be. No, 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 that's right. Um, let's talk about NVIDIA. So we've been touching oh. on Meg 7, Magnificent 7, uh, this year so far a few times. But NVIDIA, it feels like a bubble, looks like a bubble. Um, maybe it's acting like a bubble. I don't know. I, I certainly get some of the understanding around why the price keeps on going higher and higher and higher. Um, but my question to you, Rupert, is from a passive investing framework or mentality, at what stage do you look at companies like this where clearly it's it's stuck in this positive feedback loop and and you kind of go right well I, I get that I'm a passive investor and I'm going to invest no matter what the circumstances are but when there's clearly something going on of this magnitude why wouldn't it be excluded or at least dialed down as a, as a proportion of what's inside your portfolio I look so I think as a passive investor you, you, you just the moment that you start making those decisions, you're no longer a passive investor. It's as simple as that, right? <laughs> yeah. um, and so therefore you, you do hold and you take the good and the bad, right? That's that's the beauty about passive investing. You, you buy an uh, S&P 500 track fund, you've got 500 companies, let's be honest, 10 of those are going to go bankrupt every year. Maybe even 20 of them are going to go bankrupt every year. Mm -hmm. 20 of them will do kind of five or 10 times return and then a whole lot will just perform normally. And so I think that's, that's the honest truth. The moment that you try and take a view, you kind of miss out. And I think coming back to probably your points on, on um, frothy and is it bubble, is it what, uh, the truth is we, we just do not know. I mean, what's absolutely amazing about NVIDIA, right? NVIDIA expects, so I'm just looking at some numbers down here. So January 2024, that 12 months, they did $61 billion of revenue. Mm. By the end of next year, that's expected to be $131 billion of revenue. Um, and yeah. so when you push it forward onto a valuation metric, actually, you go, currently, yeah, yeah they're pretty expensive, kind of 47 and a half times current year earnings. But, but actually, two, yeah. two, two years forward, they're only at a 27 times forward earnings, which is actually below the rest of the NASDAQ, kind of 100. And so actually the, the big question you need to ask yourself with a company like NVIDIA is, is it sustainable? And is the revenue growth that they, is the 
the advantages and what they've built in the GPU world, is it something that can kind of stay, keep them at the top of their game or is it not? And I think that's the gazillion dollar question that no one really knows the answer to. At the end of the day, they're currently selling every single chip they can produce right now. They're Mm -hmm. earning extortionate margins apparently uh, because they can sell them for whatever price they want because actually they're selling them unlike what was happening to Cisco and those others in the 2000s, the big equipment manufacturers. These guys are selling to extremely large, extremely profitable companies. So the Mm. big buyers of these are kind of uh, the Amazons with their kind of AWS, the uh, Microsoft and their Azure platforms. So it's not as though they're selling to small, not profitable companies either. So that's the bit that Mm. I go, they've got something great, great technology, valuation, not all that high, great margins, Mm -hmm. but do they have a big enough moat that enables them to kind of protect it? Or is it pretty easy for someone to just come in and whack them sideways and kind of steal all of that market share off them? To be brutally honest though, Darcy, it's no different to what we have been saying about Apple for the better part of the last 15 years. Mm. So for the last 15 years, everyone said, now Apple, Apple, Apple. Apple is simply a phone manufacturer. Historically, that's been a low margin, volatile, cyclical industry, and they'll get competed out. And 15 years later, that still hasn't happened. Mm-hmm. True. So that's the bit. So I don't know what the answer is. So coming back to mm-hmm. as a passive investor, do I want to answer that question and come mm-hmm. up with a conclusion? No. It's not worth changing your, your philosophical underpinnings just based on that one example. Um, especially, yeah, yeah I, I can understand that. And it's the moat thing, I think, that, that I find interesting because contrast that with the dot-com crash uh like we don't have netscape as the the lion's share of our index today and that's the thing that's playing out in the back of my head clearly there's a new frontier of technology through ai and there's going to be a land grab and nvidia is is very much in that but at some stage the dust settles and that wave of adoption kind of goes out and i don't know i don't know it's um, uh, uh, and I agree with that, by the way. And I think that the AI land grab does it drive a step change in profitability. Does it drive a whole lot of things that become really, really different? Uh, I'm pretty skeptical on that. Mm-hmm. Um, but unfortunately, the last three years have taught us anything. It's uh, don't bet against the markets. Yeah, yeah. I, I need to learn more about NVIDIA myself, but like, I, I know that there's some stuff going on there in terms of where the money comes from that, I don't know. I don't know. Let's, let's move on though. <laughs> let's move on to a, a longer, to an, easy topic. an easier topic, but it's, it's, it's easier, but it's kind of similar in, in, in a way that you were talking about these massive numbers from 61 billion to $131 billion of earnings with NVIDIA looking forward. And then we have Berkshire Hathaway sitting yeah. on, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but around about $160 billion worth of cash, I think it is. Yep. Um, that's a lot of cash. <laughs> like that's more than the predicted earnings of, of uh, NVIDIA. And so, and this is, again, it's kind of like the, um, the story around the US shutdown. It just keeps on coming up. And last time this came up with Berkshire Hathaway, I remember I was, I was personally speculating, well, do they see some sort of crash coming? They've got a lot of dry powder ready so that they can pounce in there. But no, the story is more probably similar to what it was back then, where 
based on the model that you use to invest with, things just appear to be overvalued and the good investments that are already out there have been picked to death. So they just have no reason to invest. And so I've got these questions around, well, does that mean the model is broken that they're using? Uh, that, or does it mean that maybe this time it is different and they're actually positioned just the way you'd want to be? Uh, what are your thoughts? Yeah, it's a, the model's a really interesting question. And I think um, there are two points to that answer, right? No other conglomerate has ever managed to last and no other conglomerate has ever made it work. So Warren Buffett's clearly onto something pretty special here. The problem is, I'm just trying to find the number, the problem is that he spits out kind of um, something like 50 or $60 billion a year of cash flow, and he doesn't like paying dividends. And so he's got to find something to do with all that money. Uh, historically, he's kind of uh, used the stock market to kind of put stuff in. He's also spent quite a lot of money buying his own shares back. Mm. Um, but he's even taking the view at the moment that his own shares feel pretty expensive, so he doesn't even want to buy them back. Uh, yeah. which is an interesting conversation. So It is, yeah. I actually do think he is kind of in a roundabout way saying that, look, um, the market is pretty toppy and he is pretty nervous about where things are going. I think he is positioning himself to kind of sit there and stay as that, last, uh, le that lender of last resort, which he played during the GFC. The problem is there's a lot of people sitting there in that same space right now and it's, mm. and it's very competitive and it's a much harder spot to be in. So mm. it, it is going to be interesting to see where and how we can take the model because uh, mm. the one thing, as much as we'd like to um, have the challenge, spending $160 billion is not that easy. And then also mm. thinking about it, by this time next year, that's like $210 billion. So yeah. even just to yeah. keep that cash pile flat, he's got yeah. to keep spending an extra 40 or $50 billion a year. Yeah, it's nuts, isn't it? Have you seen that movie... Um Eddie Murphy, uh, I think it was Eddie Murphy. Yeah, Eddie Murphy, or was it Richard Pryor? No, it was Richard Pryor, who uh, remade a movie called Brewster's Millions. Have you ever seen that? It was yeah, yeah I've early seen that. Yeah. yeah, and it was kind of like that. Like that was his job was to spend a million dollars within a certain you know twenty four hour yeah. period or whatever it was before you got the rest of it. And that's kind of what it feels like with um, it's it's not Munger's millions. It's it's uh, you know <laughs> so it's Buffett's millions, and I think that. Yeah, again, it says more about the system, doesn't it, uh, rather than anything else. Like when when money can be created out of thin air, as long as the people believe it, and firms like this can just buy their own stocks, it, what is it yeah. apart from a gigantic circle jerk, right? Like that's pretty much what this is. <laughs> oh, no, no, and, it, it is, right? And there's a good article this morning that I, or thing I was listening to this morning where they're talking about um, – the value of buybacks versus the value of dividends because Apple's exactly the same. Apple's got a massive cash pile at the moment um, and, but refusing to do buybacks and they're claiming that it's because of tax efficiency, but that's bullshit because the tax rates on capital gains are the same as the tax on dividends in the U S and so, yeah, it is, I find it, it is a really interesting question, right? And it's a really interesting thing for people to think through um, dividends versus buybacks and yes. over the last kind of 10 years these companies have gone much more into the buyback route because then they don't have to commit because once you yeah. started paying a dividend nothing will cool your share price faster than dropping that dividend or slowing it even if you've got really yeah. great opportunities it's something yeah. that uh, people don't like to do from a corporate governance perspective from a shareholder perspective 
we should be we should prefer that they give us dividends uh, because at least we can then they need to come and ask us for some money right. before they then yeah. go and do anything dumb. Yeah. Um, whereas if it's got 160 billion dollars sitting on his own balance sheet, um, he doesn't need to come and ask us for anything. To be yeah, fair, right. Tim Cook at Apple, uh, Warren Buffett, Berkshire Hathaway, those people that you're going to trust to do it. But there's a reason why um, the Meta share price jumped 30 percent on the day that they announced their first dividend because all of a sudden everyone goes phew. All of a sudden, Mark Zuckerberg. He can no longer go and frit away as gazillions building something in a in the metaverse. He can't do this. He's yeah. now going to have to respond to the normal traditional corporate governance um, and governance yeah. things and dividends. Um, they do create a set of kind of handcuffs that yeah. uh, do mean typically result in better companies in the medium term. That's a good point. That's a really good point because this also speaks to this decentralization of power, right? Like if there's yeah. this. Um, pressure for them to declare dividends, then it's decentralizing that more towards the shareholders rather than creating this citadel, right? Um, exactly. Yeah, interesting. Okay. Man, I've, I've got a lot to learn. Like after this episode, I'm just thinking uh, I, with respect <laughs> to the, the OCR, the long-term fiscal positioning, the US shutdown, NVIDIA and Berkshire Hathaway, there's so much stuff that if you wanted to spend like a day at least just digging into those things, you would still have questions. But it's just there's so much going on right now so fascinating so great to be an investor right now i think because it's either going to be um like a really dramatic armageddon situation or possibly and this is my base case one of the best times to be alive as an investor because we're entering into a new a new state of some sort where i think roaring maybe, 20s all over again i think there might be something like that cooking to be honest i know it sounds a bit crazy but um, like I'm a closet optimist, hardcore when it comes to what's oh, going gosh. on right now, um, underneath it all, like it's, it's pretty scary on the surface, but I think, yeah, like if, if you were committed to a long-term strategy of 20 to 30 years with your investment journey, then I think you could be encouraged, especially if you're just starting out because who the hell cares if it crashes tomorrow, you've still got 20 or 30 years ahead of you. You know what I mean? Uh, and that's the point. Uh, trying to time it and trying to figure out that timing. If you've got 30 years left, who cares? Um, You're going to win no matter what, right? And you're probably going to miss out. Um, More often than not, you'll miss out by trying to time it than um, than, uh, getting that timing right. Very few people consistently get it right. Yeah, cool. All right. Let's finish up there. It sounds like you need to have like a lemon and honey drink. It sounds like you're getting a little bit bit sick there, uh, Rupert. Hopefully you feel better. Oh, yeah, I'll survive. Three children. They'll bring in all the bugs and kill you on the way through in every possible way. Oh, yeah, totally. (laughs) (laughs) They'll visit you in the old age home, though. All right. Uh, That's it. I hope. Okay, thanks, Darcy. We'll speak soon. Have a good one. See ya.